0: And now I invite you to kneel with me. Let's have a a season of prayer. We'll get started into our, our, our topic for today. So if you can, I invite you to kneel. Our Father which art in heaven, hallowed be thy holy name. Father, we thank you so very much for this Sabbath day, this opportunity that we still have in this country to come apart, To worship you who is the truth. To worship you in spirit and in truth. To be together with like believers. To fellowship. Get a taste of heaven. What it's truly like. Father, we thank you so much that you created this day. Help us always to remember and to keep it holy. We thank you for uh, Jesus. You gave all heaven in Jesus so that we may be saved. We give you ourselves now anew. We pray, Lord, that through the blood of Christ that you'll forgive us for our sins. Individually and as a people. Lord, we pray the Holy Spirit be poured out and angels that excel in strength and help us to come together in order, be unified. Under your banner. To spread the three angels' messages and giving a warning. This Antichrist call for supposed unity and Father we pray for those who couldn't be here those who are shut-ins we pray you'd be very near to them those who are dealing with injuries and illnesses and Father we especially pray for our families and our children time is so short shorter than we can even imagine and we want all to know the truth and make a right decision and be saved Father, I pray that you will give me the words to speak now. That they will be the truth, not my opinion. That they will be your words. That hearts will be receptive. And that they will aid in bringing glory to thy name. I pray this in the blessed name of Jesus, our Lord and Savior. Amen. Well, friends, this is, and I, I will ask, I'll ask patience because I'm not wearing my suit jacket. This time is just, my wood stove has really cooked it up in here. It's probably about 80 degrees, at least it feels like it is. And uh, so I appreciate, <laughs> I appreciate your patience. I'm not being disrespectful in any way. Uh, I've entitled this part of our series, The Message, The Home and Church, and this is part one of four parts. In our previous studies, we've come to understand that in many respects, like the sanctuary and its services, um, teach us about the gospel, you know, and the, the mission of Christ through symbols. The creation and organization of the family circle is also a model that teaches us about the government and character of God. And I want to share the two main quotes with you again that that emphasizes this truth when we started talking about gospel order. I want to share these with you again. I hope you're familiar with them. They're both out of the Adventist home. The first one, page 306. There is need for constant watching that the principles which lie at the foundation of family government are not disregarded. All we need to do is just love each other, you see. We don't need any family rules or family government, doctrines. Doesn't that sound ridiculous? It's amazing to me. Anyway, she goes on, The Lord designs that the families on earth shall be symbols of the family in heaven. And when earthly families are conducted in right lines, now who, de- who determines what the right lines are? That would be God, wouldn't it? We find it in His Word. She says, And when earthly families are conducted in right lines, the same sanctification of the Spirit, that's the Holy Spirit, will be brought into the church. The second quote is, again, the Adventist home. This one's on page 319. In the home... The foundation is laid for the prosperity of the church. Where? In the home. The influences that rule in the home life are carried into the church life. Therefore, logically, see, church duties should first begin in the home. And so as we looked at this, I'm bringing this back to your attention again and reminding you of this we talked about and we're talking about love see, there's a false love in the world. That's what the Antichrist has. That's what he presents. And there's a true love. And the true love is this agape, that's the love of God. That's why John says, "God is love. He's agape. And I'll tell you, a lack of love in the family circle promotes disunity and disorder. Look at the world. We've been given warnings that say, that, the, that describes the character traits, the condition, the attitude of people of the world before Christ comes. The love of many shall wax cold, we're told. Lovers of pleasure is more than lovers of God. And so a lack of love in the family circle promotes disunity and disorder. Look at the state of our families in the world today. Are they in unity and order? And not just of the world. Friends, we want to know why the church is in apostasy. It starts at home. This dysfunction in the family circle is the foundation for the disunity of the people of God. And I have to ask, why is there such a lack of love within our families, and thus the church? And again, when I say love, I mean godly love, agape, charity, self-sacrificing. Why is it lacking in our families? Well, the reason is we're missing Christ. It's due to our eyes being drawn away from our Savior. You see, the devil uses many methods to distract us and gain our attention. I've spent most of my ministry, my ministry life, talking about character issues. And it really doesn't matter what the character issue is. Whether we overcome it or succumb to it is directly related to our eye contact with Christ, spiritually speaking. Are our eyes stayed upon Him? Or do they tend to look away at the most, you know, inopportune time? Isaiah 45 verse 22 says look unto me and be ye saved all the ends of the earth for I am God and there is none else. God says you want to be saved? You have to look to me. Well what does it mean to look unto God? And that Phrase, look unto me, means the same as, you know, direct your attention to me as you do somebody that you're wishing, you know, to to help you, to aid you. It actually denotes conviction, a conviction on our part of being helpless. Like when someone's dying, you know, they cast their eye on a doctor for assistance to save them. And so, the direction to look to God for salvation actually implies a deep conviction of helplessness and of sin and a deep conviction that God only can save me. I found it interesting that for that scripture, the Targum speaks of the expression as look unto my word Jesus, and be ye saved. Let me share this with you from Maranatha, page 99. He whose eyes are fixed on Jesus will leave all. He will die to selfishness. He will believe in all the word of God, which is so gloriously and wonderfully exalted in Christ. Amen. But who is it? He whose eyes are fixed on Jesus. My well, friends, we have an eye problem, don't we? In more ways than one. Many times we take our eyes off Jesus, they're not fixed on him. Peter ran into problems when he took his eyes off Jesus, didn't he? One time he almost drowned. Another time he denied his Lord three times. His decision to look elsewhere not only affected himself, but friends, it affected the church, didn't it? And the same is true for any of us. When we take our eyes off the Lord, we leave ourselves open to the attack of the enemy. We fall into sin. And sin separates us from the union we have with Jesus. Adventist Home, page 179. The cause of division and discord in families and in the church is separation from Christ. To come near to Christ is to come near to one another. I've shared this with you before. Notice this. You want to know what the secret of true unity in the church is? She says, the secret of true unity in the church and in the family is not diplomacy, not management, not a superhuman effort to overcome difficulties, though there will be much of this to do, but union with Christ. That's the secret of true unity in the church and in the family. Union with Christ. This is the most important thing to have, and it is an individual work. It's where it starts, to have union with Christ. And this union is is what all of us are to personally strive for and maintain each and every day by grace, amen? I mean, we can look at reforms. We can look at organizational principles. Those are important. We can even adopt them. But they will avail little if we are separated from Christ. Well, I say little. Actually, they will make us Pharisees and do great harm to the spreading of the true gospel. Amen? You'll fall on one side of the road into that ditch or the other. But when we exchange our filthy garments for the pure and clean garments of the righteousness of Christ, know what happens? It will be seen in our personal life. It will ripple out to all we come into contact with, especially our family. It will be seen in our family relationships as well as the church and world. And friends, let me tell you something. It is never too late to allow Jesus into your heart and watch Him work miracles in your family relationships and growth in the church it is never too late to allow Jesus in your heart. Now let me qualify that while probation is open. (laughs) We've spent a great deal of time taking a closer look at the family circle that God ordained and, and how they are to be organized according to His plan. Remember the quote? His plan. Knowing that the family circle is a it's a key to the prosperity of the church, isn't it? And I think we've established that. Now I want you to listen to this statement. This is from Testimonies for the Church, Volume 6, page 430. Christian homes. Established and conducted in accordance with God's plan are among His most effective agencies for the formation of Christian character and for the advancement of His work. Remember that? I've shared that on a number of occasions. When we establish and conduct our homes according to God's plan, we will be the most effective agencies not only for the formation of our Christian character and be more like Jesus, but for the advancement of His work. Not only that, it brings unity and order to the church. And that's what Abraham did, you see. He established and conducted his family, his home, in accordance with God's plan. And you know what? He was called the friend of God. Genesis 18, verse 19. For I know him, that he will command his children and his household after him, and they shall keep the way of the Lord. Isn't that God's plan? And God said, I know him, to do justice and judgment that the Lord may bring upon Abraham that which he hath spoken of him. James tells us that because of Abraham's relationship with God and he followed God's plan, he established and conducted his home in that way. He was the friend of God. He says in James 2.23, Abraham believed God and it was imputed unto him for righteousness and he was called the friend of God. Do you want to be called the friend of God? Isn't that something? God says, Joel is my friend. How remarkable that that's even possible, beloved. Listen to this short statement. Selected Messages, Volume 3, page 209. Every Christian family is a church in itself. What? Every Christian family is a church in itself. Now, those who've been with us every week for months and months and months, this... Is not a surprise. (laughs) Adam and Eve was the first organized church on this planet. Every Christian family is a church in itself. But is it righteous or is it fallen? So if every Christian family is a church in itself, then we should be able to learn how the church is Uh, to attain unity in order by taking a look at God's plan for family unity and organization, right? Which is what we've done the last few months. We took a close look at the roles of men and husbands and fathers in the family firm as well as that of women and children, didn't we? And as we look at God's plan for organizing the church, friends, I'm telling you, I'm positive that you will see that the principles for the home concerning unity and organization are very similar and many times they're the same concerning unity and organization in the church. Now according to the prophet, union with Christ will lead to establishing and conducting our homes in accordance with God's plan. Would union with Christ lead to establishing and conducting the local church in accordance with God's plan? Well yes. Now, union with Christ would seem to be a no-brainer than in establishing a Christian home or church, right? But there are many families and churches that have been established that have no union with Christ at all. And thus, neither can conduct themselves in accordance to God's plan. Remember, union with Christ comes first in gospel order, doesn't it? If you remember when we talked about the definition of gospel order. Jesus Christ is gospel order. Now, there are principles of courtship in the Word of God, which is directly contrary to that of the world's idea called dating. Um, that are to be adhered to in the process of establishing a home after God's plan. Now, I may get into greater detail concerning uh, these differences, you know, biblical courtship versus dating, at a later time, but for now I'm speaking in a general sense, as an example. The principles used in biblical courtship and marriage teaches us something about God's order in the church. Courtship, you see, prepares for marriage, right? That's the whole goal of it, isn't it? It's supposed to be. There is a testing and learning time before marriage, just as there is before becoming a member of the body of Christ, when you're married to Jesus, symbolically. Let me share this with you. Manuscript 121, 1899, page 17. God calls the church His body. The church is the bride, the Lamb's wife. God is the father of the family, the shepherd of the flock. But a mere outward connection with any church will not save a man. It is personal faith in a personal Savior which brings the soul into spiritual union with Christ. Okay? So, one of the first biblical principles for establishing a home speaking of a husband and wife, is that the two are to be of the same faith. That's one of the very foundational... In fact, probably is the foundational principle of starting a a family, establishing a home. They are to be committed Christians, believers in the Lord Jesus Christ, and one in doctrine, thus in union with Jesus. And when I say one in doctrine... You know, Jesus was preaching, teaching, and they the people who we heard were astounded by His doctrine. So doctrine's very important, isn't it? And it has to be His doctrine. Well, where do we find His doctrine? We find it in the Word of God, don't we? And this is one of the doctrines. When you establish a home... The two have to be the same faith. 2 Corinthians 6, verse 14, Paul said, Be ye not unequally yoked together with unbelievers, for what fellowship hath righteousness with unrighteousness, and what communion hath light with darkness? And friends, I'm going to tell you something. This is a biblical principle that we are commanded to adhere to if we're going to start a family, have a home, and we call ourselves Christians. It consists also of a warning against any and every kind of association with unbelievers that would place place us in situations where we find it difficult or impossible to avoid compromising our principles. This prohibition also includes What I'm speaking about. The marriage relationship. But it's not restricted to that. You see. Paul is warning that we are not to be so large hearted toward unbelievers. As to enter into intimate fellowship with them. That's what he's warning. Not to go to the extreme. I've heard this this controversy, this um, attack on religious liberty in Arizona. You know, the Christians refused to, in one instance, owned a, a bakery and refused to bake a wedding cake for a gay couple. And I, I heard one supposed quote Christian says that he he loves homosexuals, and he he said because Jesus is love and Jesus is in my heart. I would agree with that. You love the person. Jesus loved his enemies and died for them. But the question was, he said, would Jesus bake a homosexual couple a cake? And then he, instead of answering it, he kind of weaseled out of it. Did Jesus condone sin? That's what the question really is. So here Paul's given a warning. He says, We are not to be so large-hearted toward unbelievers as to enter into an intimate fellowship with them because that would condone their lifestyle. That would condone sin. And to a Christian who believes the Bible, believes the Word of God, believes the commandments are binding, that's simple to follow. I mean, so great is the difference in ideals and conduct between Christians and non-Christians, believers and unbelievers, that to enter into any binding relationship with them, whether in marriage, whether it's in, in business or something else, inevitably confronts them with the alternatives of what? Abandoning their principle, or just having all kinds of difficulties because of the differences between them in belief and practice, which is usually sin. And to enter into such a union is is to obey God and what? What's the old saying? I'm going to obey God, but I'm going to bargain with the devil. Well, did you really obey God? Right, it doesn't work. You know, to be separated from sin and sinners, well, friends, you know, it's explicitly set forth throughout God's Word. Now, this principle does not forbid all association with unbelievers, does it? But only that kind of association that would tend to diminish our love for God or would would cause us to fall, maybe change our our worldview, Christian worldview, while we understand about prophecy. or because of a sincere desire to be a blessing to the unbeliever and to win him to Christ. That's the big thing. Millions of Christians lower the standard to try to reach that unbeliever. And the second question, and I think of no less importance to a Christian himself, is whose influence is likely to prevail? That of Christ or that of the evil one? When it comes to a... Binding relationships such as marriage, however, the Christian who truly loves the Lord will, under no circumstances, unite with an unbeliever, even in the pious and otherwise, you know, commendable hope of uh, uh, winning them to Christ. And I run into that all the time today. Well, I'm going to be an example. That's one of the the biggest errors and deceptions Satan has. That's why people don't leave fallen churches. Well, I'm going to stay in and I'm going to be a witness of the truth to them. Now friends, you're disobeying the Lord's command to get out. No other principle has been more strictly enjoined by God. I'll tell you that. Throughout the history of God's people, the violation of this principle has inevitably resulted in disaster, physical and spiritual. The Lord commanded ancient Israel not to intermarry with the idolatrous nations around them. Let's look at Deuteronomy chapter 7. Verse 3. Neither shalt thou make marriages with them. Thy daughter, thy daughter shall not give unto his son, nor his daughter shalt thou take unto thy son. For they will turn away thy son from following me that they may serve other gods. Friends, I'm telling you, it's a principle. You lower the standard of God and the idea, this false idea, I've heard some refer to it as a savior complex. This false idea of, I'm going to reach that person. Or the idea, I'm going to stay in this fallen church and I'm going to be a witness to them and bring them back to the Lord. What do we just read here in Deuteronomy? It's a principle. They will turn away thy son from following me, is what God said. That they may serve other gods. So will the anger of the Lord be kindled against you and destroy thee suddenly. You think God takes this seriously? Do you? Have we been... Dumbed down by this sloppy agape that's been taught. Let me read this to you from Our High Calling, page 257. As a child of God, you are permitted to contract marriage only in the Lord. Should you consent to unite your life with that of an unbeliever, you would be disregarding the Word of God and imperiling your soul. Now, why am I speaking about this? Because it teaches us something about gospel order. When you form a family, when you start a home, it's, it's, a, it's like starting a church. You know, some people marry for money. Some people marry for power. Some for, you know, a name. You know, some guys marry these uh, famous actresses or something, you know. Some get engaged while still having a few of the old boyfriends and girlfriends uh, around just in case, you know. And many join the church in the same way. They're called out of Babylon, but they only come part of the way out. They continue to keep their membership in their previous church just in case, you see. I run into that a lot. Just in case. And friends, I'm telling you, that's being unequally yoked and it will destroy unity and order and possibly your soul. Let me ask you a question. Who would marry someone who was still dating other people? I'm not talking about polygamy here. The Mormons, they might do that. But seriously, who would? What remnant church would add someone to their membership who was still in a relationship with Babylon? Yeah. Well, the prophet tells us that it's a backsliding church that allows half-converted Babylonians to become members of the church. What's the example? Biblically biblically speaking, those who are courting can spend time together only under the care of a chaperone. They get acquainted with each other and they learn about each other under strict guidelines. Their parents meet the other parents and time is spent in counseling the couple, seeking God's will in the matter. If the parents see the Lord's hand is in the courtship and that the couple has met the the biblical standards for a marriage, that they will meet each other's needs and glorify the Lord, then the parents give the okay and the couple becomes engaged and the marriage is planned. And biblical courtship principles still apply until the two actually become one in marriage. Likewise, friends. Those who are courting Christ spend time with Him, studying the book about His life, seeking counsel in prayer, all under the care of a chaperone, the Holy Spirit. And maybe, you know, some teachers, some pastor, minister. Bible truths are revealed and explained. There are fundamental beliefs that must be accepted before there is a union before there is a marriage, before there is baptism, and the person becomes a member of the church. Before marriage, a Christian woman must know whether the man she's going to marry lines up with the biblical roles of a man, a husband and a father. These are her fundamental beliefs, you see. And vice versa, the same for him. Now, you know, God will lead you to that. Amos 3.3, 3. we know what that says. Can two walk together except they be agreed? And the same is true for a person who's going to marry Christ, become a member of His body, see? Do they love Jesus? Do they believe and accept the truth found in the Word of God? Are they willing to commit themselves completely to Him? Before anyone is baptized, they must be in agreement with the pillars of the faith expressed in the Word of God and thus in agreement with the church, you see. Time is spent with the person in study and fellowship and it becomes clear through some time whether or not they love Jesus with their whole heart and whether they believe the fundamental truths of His Word. It is seen whether or not they are willing and ready to be married to Christ to make a commitment, full commitment to Him. And this is the first order in establishing a Christian home. And you see that example. It's also the first order in in establishing a church and adding members to it. There must be agreement upon the truths of the Bible. And most importantly, present truth, our present truth. And friends, I'll tell you, you if it's plain that the person's ready to be baptized, thus becoming a member of the church, the bride of Christ, then the baptism, you could say wedding, is scheduled. Just as courtship principles apply up to the wedding, biblical principles still apply up to the baptism and beyond. I mean, some courtship practices should also apply beyond the wedding. Isn't that right, ladies? And at the wedding, what happens? The couple vow to each other and to God in the presence of witnesses. And these vows declare what? Their their love for each other and their promises to each other to fulfill the role that the Lord has designed for them as a man and wife, to be as one. Genesis 2.24 Therefore shall a man leave his father and his mother and shall cleave unto his wife and they shall be one flesh. I just want to point out, hope that you notice, that the two are to leave the father and mother, becoming one together. You see, this establishes their home. It is their home. It's not the father and the mother's home. So they're starting a Christian family. And Paul said in Galatians 3, 27, he said, For as many of you as as have been baptized unto Christ, have put on Christ. And he said in 2 Corinthians 5, 17, Therefore, if any man be in Christ, he's a new creature. Old things are passed away. Behold, all things are become new. So Paul says, you put on Christ, you be in Christ. Well, what does that mean? You know, when... when he became a Christian... Paul was baptized into Jesus. And the new life he lived was centered in Christ. He left the world and he became joined to Christ and subject to his life, power, influence, uh, his word. He became one with Christ. Just as the husband and wife become one. Baptism by immersion is not only a symbol of the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ, and an open expression of faith in His saving grace in the giving up of sin in the world. It's also recognized as a condition of becoming a member of the body of Christ, being married to Christ. You know, in the... in the Jewish marriage at the time of Jesus, when He was here, if a couple were interested in becoming a family, there would be a covenant drawn up by the fathers that laid out the bride price. Um, It laid out the vows. It it laid out the date of the wedding. And so then they would bring the couple together. Um, And the groom would pour a glass of wine, or, well, we know as unfermented juice and he'd offer it to to the bride the fiance so to speak by accepting the wine she showed that she accepted the groom as her husband now if she had no attraction or love or whatever that was taken into consideration as well same with him they didn't just force weddings force marriages as some cultures do But uh, he'd offer her this, this wine, this juice. And if she accepted it, the wine, it showed that she accepted him as her groom. And there's a spiritual aspect to this. When we accept the wine of communion, we are accepting the sacrifice of Jesus for our sins, aren't we? and maybe I'll do a message comparing a Jewish wedding to the ministry of Christ sometime for really the parallels are pretty they're pretty remarkable you see we learn all kinds of things from well who who instituted marriage it was god wasn't it we ought to learn something about god from weddings anyway when the bride accepted the wine the 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 betrothal was then official it was binding it could only be undone by a divorce with proper grounds such as if the bride for instance wasn't a virgin and you see that's the difficulty that joseph dealt with when he found out that mary was pregnant remember he was going to divorce her he could she wasn't a virgin anymore see but when they were betrothed, they were essentially married before the ceremony and, and uh, consummation. And parts of those traditions um, we can still see today in a Christian wedding. Although I tell you, some of the weddings today are more pagan than you would could imagine. It's just remarkable to me. But, but let's look at it. Today there's a, a wedding license that makes the marriage binding by law, Right? It shows that a covenant of marriage has been made and both parties sign it showing accountability to each other, that they meant what they vowed and are willing to be held to it, even by civil law. Now, in our church, before there is a baptism, the candidate has agreed to the fundamental beliefs they are based in the Bible. And has signed a church membership covenant pledging to be baptized and become a member. And on the scheduled day of the baptism, which you could call the wedding to Christ, the person's brought before witnesses and vows are expressed to God in public. And then the candidate is baptized and the church fulfills their part of the covenant. You see, I've had people ask me, why does the church vote somebody into membership? Here's why. The candidate is baptized, the church fulfills their part of the covenant by voting the person into membership, becoming one with them. The vote is just a way of expressing that they agree to it. And when a church is established, members have agreed to fundamental beliefs and, and they too sign a covenant of membership, you see, showing accountability to each other, becoming one body. I'll tell you, if you want a good study, look into vows and covenants in the Bible. It may open your eyes a bit. And by the way, Seventh day Adventists first covenant to become an organized church in 1861. Let me share this with you. J.N. Lofborough writes this account. It's from a review, the Adventist Review of October 15, 1861. He says, on the sixth day of the month of October, the Michigan conference was organized by the election of a chairman, a secretary, and executive committee of three. By vote, the conference recommended that the churches organize, adopting the following as a church covenant. We, the undersigned, hereby associate ourselves together as a church taking the name Seventh-day Adventists, covenanting to keep the commandments of God and the faith of Jesus Christ, end quote. A committee was appointed to prepare an address formulating plans for organizing churches. So, friends, having a membership covenant is important. We've had examples, examples of the family. when When a couple get married, they make a covenant to each other. When you're baptized into the church, you're making a covenant. Not just with Christ, but with His church. When a church is formed, it comes together, it makes a covenant. So let's say a group of faithful people is covenanted um, to establish a local church, to organize a church. What do they do? Well, let's take a look at the family unit. You see? This is why I call this the home and church. This series of messages. That's why we spent time on looking at the Christian family unit, God's plan. Because it teaches us about the church. Let's look at this. There's a man and a woman who become one body, one flesh, as uh, the Bible says. The church is to be one body, isn't it? The man... Is Christ the woman? Is the church? Paul said in Romans twelve, verse four and five: For as we have many members in one body, and all members have not the same office, so we, being many, are one body in Christ, and every one members one of another. All right? First Corinthians ten, verses sixteen and seventeen: The cup of blessing which we bless is not the communion of the blood of, excuse me the cup of blessing which we bless is it not the communion of the blood of Christ the bread which we break is it not the communion of the body of Christ for we being many are one bread and one body for we are all partakers of that one bread he says in verse uh, in uh, um in chapter 12 Verses 12 to 14, he says, For as the body is one, and hath many members, and all the members of that one body being many, are one body, so also is Christ. For by one Spirit are we all baptized into one body, whether we be Jews or Gentiles, whether we be bond or free, and have been all made to drink into one Spirit. For the body is not one member, but many. And uh, verse 20, But now are they many members, yet but one body. In Ephesians 4, verse 4-6, he says, There is one body, one spirit, even as ye are called in one hope of your calling, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is above all, through all, and in you all. And so, friends, we see that there is one body, and that body is made up of different members. But they're one. They have covenanted together to be one body. Hebrews ten twenty five. Now this isn't just limited to in, individuals uh, joining a local church. Hebrews ten twenty five says, not forsaking the assembling of ourselves together as the manner of some is, but exhorting one another, and so much the more as you see the day approaching. What's he mean here? Well, Christians are to assemble themselves together, not only on the Sabbath day, but also as a local church that's covenanted together to be one, to be one body in that local area. Then, maybe through growth, they split off, or they start another church. They've grown. See, they assemble themselves together as a sisterhood of churches. It's often referred to, if possible. Because, see, it's a principle here. God can only bless organization, remember? Gospel order. And that may continue. And that happens to be effective in the work for the master see one one local group well you had a group of disciples that that changed the world but how did they do that they did it by this principle planting churches then churches planting churches because they were working for the master in unity they were in order and sometimes they had to be reorganized, brought into better order, see? Now, what do these scriptures that I shared with you? What, what do they tell us? Well, first of all, another thing they tell us, other than there's one body, is that they rule out congregational churches. And, it, and in case you don't know, a congregational church is a church that is of itself. Everything's kept within itself. The offerings, the tithe, everything's in itself. It's not connected with any other church. It essentially is an independent Adam. And truthfully, as an independent Adam, they can be virtually, they are apart from the body of Christ. Now, if they choose to be that way, they don't know any different Of course, God winks at our ignorance sometimes, see. But this is where we find the Advent movement at this moment. Very sad to say. We're not properly organized together as churches. We're in many respects congregational. But friends, let's change that and come into proper order. Amen? We need to come together. Let me tell you something. Satan started a congregational church in heaven that was independent of the heavenly church. you believe that? Let's not do that. Now, these scriptures also rule out a hierarchical form of organization. And Satan's congregational church is also based on a hierarchy where he's the leader and there are bosses under him, you see. You remember what Jesus said about having brother over brother? Matthew 20 through. 23, verse 8, he said, "...but be not ye called rabbi, for one is your master, even Christ, and all ye are..." What? Brethren. That's not a hierarchy. Peter tells us, First Peter 5, verse 2, he says, "...feed the flock of God which is among you, taking the oversight thereof, not by constraint, but willingly." not for filthy lucre, but of a ready mind, neither as being lords over God's heritage, but being examples to the flock. And when the chief shepherd shall appear, ye shall receive a crown of glory that fadeth not away. Likewise, ye younger, submit yourselves unto the elder. Yea, all of you be subject one to another, and be clothed with what? Humility. For God resisteth the proud, and giveth grace to the humble. Humble yourselves, therefore, un, under the mighty hand of God, that he may exalt you in due time, casting all your care upon him, for he careth for you. So, friends, see, church office does not justify being a dictator or having dictatorial measures. Because, you see, appointment to any position of leadership actually should be considered an opportunity to serve, not as an invitation to exercise any kind of authority. We're all brethren. Notice this, Testimonies for the Church, Volume 7, page 180. Organizations, institutions, unless kept by the power of God, will work under Satan's dictation to bring men under the control of men. And fraud and guile will bear the semblance of zeal for truth and for the advancement of the kingdom of God. Whatever in our practice is not as open as the day. See that? Whatever in our practice is not open as the day belongs to the methods of the prince of evil. Wow. Jesus was accused of planning sedition. And he said, everything that I've shared, I mean, I've spoken... Openly, I've done nothing in secret. is that what she's saying? So friends, I mean, we found that it is of the utmost importance that the family be organized under the direction of God. Right? And according to His inspired writings. And so too, the church must be organized under the direction of God and according to His Word. And we've seen that a, a congregational and a... Uh, a hierarchical form of church organization is actually, it's against the direction of God. So what form of organization does God ordain? Let's look at Proverbs 11 and verse 14. It says, Where no counsel is, the people fall. But in the multitude of counselors, there is safety. So Jesus laid out this principle. He says, well, the Bible tells us that Jesus is the head, isn't he? He's the chief cornerstone. He's the head. He's the head of the church. And he said, we're all brethren. Each member is invested, you see. They've covenanted. They're invested. They have a voice when it comes to church matters. And let me tell you this. When it comes to doctrinal differences... They are not decided democratically. <laughs> you don't go by majority rules. Well, what do you go by? You go by the weight of evidence that's found in the scriptures. You all have a voice, every one of us, because we've covenanted together to be one body with Christ as the head. But when it comes to deciding, you know, like I was saying, Uh, doctrinal issues, we go to the Word of God for that, don't we? Amen? The church is to have a, like the United States, the church is to have a representative form of organization under the guidance of the Lord's appointed representatives as described in the Bible. Like uh, Ephesians 4, for example. You look at Ephesians 4. Verse 11. And He gave some apostles and some prophets, and some evangelists, and some pastors and teachers. Why? For the perfecting of the saints, for the work of the ministry, for the edifying of the body of Christ, till we all come in the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God unto a perfect man, unto the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. So you see, God's government His church is to be organized in a representative fashion. There's no anarchy. There's no kingly power. There's no hierarchy. It's not a dictatorship. That's Romanism. We're not to be congregational either, friends. But Jesus is the head and He's provided leaders to the church to serve its needs in doing the work of God. Not as bosses, but as counselors and servants. Look at the family unit again. Let's look at it. First, let's look at uh, 1 Corinthians 11, verse 3. Remember what Paul said. He said, But I'd have you know that the head of every man is what? Christ. He's the head. And the head of the woman is the man. And the head of Christ is God. And we learn in looking at the role of the man. The man is the house man. He's the leader of the home church. Let's quickly look at the biblical role and responsibilities of the man again just to refresh our memories. First, he is to be the head of the home. He's a type of savior to the family and that's important to understand. We get into church organization here. and I'll, tell you, I'll share that with you in just a moment. He's a type of savior to the family. He's not the wife. He and not the wife or mother is is uh, uh, to be the leader of the home. Second, he is to be the lover of the home. He is to love his wife and children as Christ loved the church. He's not to neglect intimacy towards his family, especially his wife. Uh, Third thing, he is to be the provider of the home. Men have been given the primary responsibility to provide for the necessities of the family. We see that in the leadership. We provide for the membership. What? We protect them from wolves. (laughs) We... You know, Share with them experiences in God's Word, etc. Um, he's to work for, or the family doesn't exist, right? The Bible tells us a man that doesn't work is worse than an infidel. Uh, the fourth thing, he's to be the lawmaker of the home. He's to lay out the rules of the home with help from the wife and ensure that righteous principles are carried out in the home that will encourage Christ-like um, uh, character development. Fifth thing, he is to be the glue of the home. He's to live at home. Be the glue that binds all members of the family together in a close band. That's why he's called the house band or husband. The sixth thing, he's to be the humble servant of the home. He is to esteem the family members and all others above himself, attending to their needs at the sacrifice of his own. And this is to be like Christ, isn't it? And the seventh thing, he's to be the priest of the home. He is the shepherd that leads the family in worship of the true God. He'll sacrifice all for eternal welfare. Now, he is not the Lord of the woman or the family for he's under Christ, right? He is to guide the family as best he can and provide for it. Now, let me tell you, this is an example of one type of local church leadership. Just as you see in the family. Certain aspects are just for the man. Beloved, plain and simple. It's just for the man. Such as the husband. He has headship, he's like a savior, and a priest. And this shows us that only a biblically qualified male is called of God to handle sacred duties such as communion and baptism, uh, marriage and organization as he is in Christ's role for such things that pertain to Christ's ministry. That's one type of leadership. That can only be fulfilled by a qualified male. Period. The Bible is very clear about it. If you look at the role of family, it's the same. Then there's another type of leadership that is filled by qualifying men and women that aid the first type like the wife aids the husband. Do you see? And this can include, you know, prophets, teachers, such things as uh, clerks, treasurers, etc. The roles that are not called to handle sacred duties. So I hope you're starting to see the principles that we find in the family unit are the same principles that we we'll find in church order, and we'll get to it in more detail as we go along in our studies. And uh, I appreciate uh, your your time, especially today. And I encourage you to study this out for yourself. Study all things. You find that I have spoken out of turn, or there's questions get in touch with me because i want to know what the truth is and i hope that you do too let's have a word of prayer father in heaven we do and indeed thank you so very very much for the holy bible inspired writings that teach us uh, between truth and error teach us your plan your plan for the family uh, gospel order in our families and thus in the church that we may be better organized to share the present truth for this day with those of our neighbors, those in our communities and in the world. I pray, Lord, that you will strengthen the faith of your people. We see that time is much shorter than we may realize. And Father, I pray for our children and our families. They may come to know thee, the true God, that you are indeed love, that you are merciful and patient, forgiving, a giver of joy, Father, I pray that we believe, but help thou our unbelief. Please continue to bless us this Sabbath day. We pray in the name of Jesus, who is worthy. Amen.